everyone. My name is Sarah Walter. I'm a principal on the FinTech Collective team and welcome to our SPAC 101 conversation. SPACs have become increasingly popular over the course of this year, but are not necessarily as well understood as traditional IPOs per se. And to just put their popularity in perspective, uh, SPAC volumes so far this year have hit record levels and by gross proceeds raised are over four and a half times that of 2019, which was the highest yearly volume since the financial crisis. And for this conversation, I'm lucky to be joined by two experts on the subject, Paul Abrahamzadeh and Herb Yeh, both senior Citibank execs who have done a lot of work in the space. So I'd love to start by having Paul and Herb introduce themselves, what Citi's done in and outside of SPACs this year in a little more detail, and then we can jump right into it. Thanks, Sarah. As Sarah mentioned, Paul Abrahamzadeh, I run equity capital markets for North America at Citigroup have been at the firm for 19 years, 18 of those years in equity capital markets. Uh, we've been very active in the SPAC industry for the past 15 years. This has been the most busy uh, year for us in equity capital markets from a SPAC standpoint, given the record volumes on both the SPAC IPO front as well as SPAC mergers. Uh, we've seen some of the largest SPAC IPOs in history with Churchill Four at $2 billion, Pershing Square $4 billion, and then importantly, a migration of SPAC IPOs into growth verticals like tech with the first crossover funds issuing SPACs in the form of Dragoneer and Altimeter, which we led. Also some very high profile SPAC mergers, and we've seen that migration into growth equity, mergers with companies like Open Door and Clover, where we served as sell-side advisor, uh, and then companies like Bill Trust, which merged with our South Mountain SPAC. So very active year, happy to chat about SPACs. Herb? Yeah, great. Thanks, Paul. Herb Yeh, I co-head our global tech investment banking effort at Citi. We focus on all of the key verticals within technology, from semis to systems to enterprise software to consumer internet. FinTech is a huge focus for us. And Sarah, thank you and the FinTech Collective for having us today. Well, thank you both for joining us. We're excited to have you. So I guess to kick things off, let's just start with the very basics. So what is a SPAC? How do they get formed and who backs them generally? And if you could just kind of talk about that in the context all the way through the de-SPACing process, that would be great. Sure. So SPAC is a blind pool vehicle listed on a stock exchange. It represents capital that can be deployed typically within a two-year period in the form of a merger with a private company. So the way to think of the SPAC is a partner to take a private company public, where the SPAC takes a minority stake in that target and in doing so takes the private company public. So think of it as a go public vehicle, really a merger, less an acquisition. Very rarely is there a control stake taken by the SPAC. In terms of who sponsors the SPAC, it's typically either an individual or an institution or a combination thereof. You've seen iconic individual sponsor SPACs. You've seen some of the largest private equity, venture capital, and crossover funds sponsor SPACs. You're seeing a melding of those two universes. Also institutional asset managers, which historically bought SPACs are now also co-sponsoring SPACs. So uh, the landscape has changed dramatically over the course of the past 12 months, accelerating post-COVID. Given that we're in a low-rate environment, investors are looking for yield or synthetic yield, which the SPAC offers through its structure. Importantly, the SPAC has three key attributes that investors find attractive, which is leading to this boom in SPAC IPO capital raising. Number one, it carries a treasury rate of return. So when the capital is invested in the SPAC, that capital sits in a trust. The capital is then deployed into U.S. treasuries. The second form of return is in a fractional warrant. So almost all SPACs are sold with a fractional warrant, typically a half to a third of a warrant alongside a share in the SPAC. That's referred to as the unit structure. And investors have value in that fractional warrant 
It carries anywhere between typically 50 cents to $1.50 of value. And through that, investors realize a synthetic yield, which in this current low rate environment is very attractive. The third form of value is a, an ability to invest in a target company, the company with which the SPAC merges with no downside risk. And what we mean by that is when a SPAC merger is announced, the stock will trade during the two to three month SEC review period for the proxy filing. It'll trade synthetically as the target company. Investors see how the stock trades in response to the stated merger value. They then have the ability to redeem and take their money out at the end of that process if they don't like the way the stock is traded or the implications for the market's perception of value. So from that standpoint, three key areas where investors see value in the SPAC, that's led to record SPAC capital raising. And as a result, that's fueled uh, this increase in SPAC merger activity that we've seen over the course of 2020. Awesome. Thank you. And so we talk about SPACs in the context of a vehicle for companies to go public. Can you just drill down a little bit into the major differences between uh, a SPAC and an IPO and a direct listing per se? Obviously, direct listings had sort of been the hot topic last year into the beginning of this year until SPACs took over. And so why would a company potentially use a SPAC to go public as opposed to the other options? IPOs still remain, traditional IPOs remain the bulk of go public activity in the U.S. market. SPACs have taken a lot of share this year. Direct listings are still nascent, but growing. You had uh, recent examples like Palantir, very high profile, and Asana. In terms of why people are looking at SPACs and why you've seen this, this move into growth equity companies merging with SPACs, there are a few reasons. First, we're late in the bull market run. It's been 10 years. A lot of issuers want to get capital certainty and valuation certainty earlier in the process. If you compare the timelines of merging with a SPAC relative to a direct listing or an IPO, you can get that price certainty and capital certainty in the SPAC merger process within a month of engaging with the SPAC. And that goes through a process of marketing privately with investors. Once uh, you've signed an LOI with, with the SPAC, we can announce the transaction to the market with value certainty, capital locked in through a pipe or a forward purchase agreement. And that, that period of one month after engaging with the SPAC, the company, the target company can have that certainty. In the case of a direct listing, it's a five-month process from start until you list. At the end of that process, the existing owners of the target company that's listing get their, their valuation certainty and the ability to monetize. For an IPO, it's typically a six-month process. And so six months from the day you start is when you actually raise the capital and the valuation is set. So I think pulling forward the ability to crystallize value and capital certainty is one thing that's resonating with investors in the SPAC process. Number two, it's a private marketing process. I mentioned this private marketing we refer to the wall crossing, so restricting investors and in trading the SPAC, showing them the target that's going to merge with the SPAC, the valuation, the structure of the deal, uh, and then having bilateral negotiations with those institutional investors, many of which are the same investors that would otherwise buy that company's IPO. Instead, they're investing in, in the SPAC pipe process. We're also getting endorsement from the holders of the SPAC to then hold the stock through the back end process where we're merging the SPAC with the target. So there are a number of reasons why people pursue the SPAC. Structurally, because the SPAC is a merger, again, when it's, in, when it's engaging with the target company, at that stage, it's a merger, you're allowed to use filed forecasts. And so the company can articulate their growth and margin profile over a multi-year period, typically anywhere between two years of forecasted performance to as far as six years. And so as a result of that clarity to the market on financial performance, you can see investors ascribe a higher multiple or a lower discount rate to that company's equity value. Uh, so another key attribute. But there's also the ability to tell the story over a protracted period of time. And so from the period of publicly announcing the deal until you close the merger, it's anywhere between two and three months. And that time is typically spent marketing to institutional investors, 
rotating the shareholder base from the holders of the SPAC into the holders of the target company, and through that process, finding long-term holders uh, of the target. Partnering with the SPAC sponsor is another key attribute. So having the ability to take the SPAC sponsor's know-how and experience and track record, translating that into a synergistic relationship with the target company to go out and tell the company's story in public market context is another area that some targets of SPACs find value throughout that process. Got it. And then can you just talk a little bit about how dilutive SPACs are to early investors and employees and if that's different uh, from a traditional IPO? Sure. The structural dilution with the SPAC comes in the form of the SPACs promote, which is typically 25% of the capital SPAC raises when the SPAC goes public in the form of incremental granted shares, as well as the warrant coverage of the deal. The majority of SPACs, as I mentioned, carry fractional warrant coverage. Uh, those warrants are sold alongside the SPAC to raise the capital from the public market. The SPAC sponsor also injects capital into the SPAC at its inception to cover the fees and expenses of the SPAC for capital raising activity. In return, the SPAC sponsor receives their sponsor warrants. So those three sources of structural dilution are different in a SPAC than an IPO. Again, the promote, the public warrants, and the SPAC sponsor warrants. What that typically represents for the target company, again, depending on the size of the SPAC, relative to the target company, depending on the warrant coverage of the SPAC, it typically results in low to high single digit percentage dilution for the target company on a pre-money equity value basis. That can be mitigated with a number of factors. The promote is negotiable. The warrants are not in the money at the time that the merge has occurred. They're typically struck at 1150, 15% out of the money versus the $10 SPAC price. And so there are tactics that can be taken as well as introducing additional capital through the form of a pipe, for example, or an FPA that's not promoted or that carries little or no warrant coverage. So there are tactics that can mitigate the dilution. The bet that most targets of SPACs make is that they're getting a higher value with greater capital certainty in the SPAC process than they are in waiting to realize value in the IPO. And a big driver of that is the filed forecasts, the ability to articulate the story, give the market greater clarity on growth and margin, but also that private marketing that we discussed, different from an IPO context, which is an entirely public book building so because of that, I think there are some invest some SPAC targets that find the ability to achieve greater value or perceived greater value in the SPAC merger process to offset the dilution from promoting warrants. Right. Okay. So you've mentioned the pipe a few times. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly that means, how the institutional investors are involved in that process and what the de-SPACing process looks like? Sure. PIPE acronym stands for Private Investment in Public Equity, and it is a private capital raise in conjunction with the SPAC merger process. So SPAC target is approached by a SPAC. They consummate a letter of intent. That LOI is signed. We then embark on the private marketing process for two to four weeks. It's during that phase that we both go to the holders of the SPAC, show them the merger, get their endorsement of the deal, verbal commitments that they believe the deal is properly structured at the right value, and then ultimately move on to the pipe investors. Pipe investors are comprised of both traditional investors in an IPO, the larger mutual funds, sovereigns, pensions, family offices, as well as hedge fund participants that would normally be uh, included in the IPO process. With that group of target investors, we aggregate the pipe demand, hopefully get oversubscribed, cut people back in the same way that we would concentrate allocations in an IPO context. Right. Uh, that pipe can range in size to being a fraction of the SPAC capital or in excess of the SPAC capital. There is no prescribed ratio of pipe capital to SPAC. The bigger the pipe, the cheaper the cost of the overall capital delivered to the target company, because typically the pipe does not carry warrants and is typically not promoted. 
So it comes without any of the additional cost that is associated with SPAC. Also, the pipe is not redeemable and it funds at closing of the merger. So from the target's perspective, the pipe is guaranteed capital that will right. close in conjunction with the, with the merger. The SPAC capital technically has the redemption right and could come right. out. When we talk about the DSPAC process, we're referring to, again, the start of the marketing process confidentially with investors from signing of the LOI with the SPAC through to public announcement of the deal. All of that is done with that wall crossing where investors are restricted from trading the SPAC stock and they have to keep the information confidential. Once we sign the merger document at the end of that private marketing process, we then publicly announce the merger and then we do the DSPACing or what we refer to as the back-end marketing for a two to three month period while the SEC is assessing the transaction, ultimately reviewing the proxy, which is the merger document, and then closing the transaction at the end of that three-month period. Uh, just ahead of that three-month period, there are two important dates. One is the redemption date, and that's when investors in the SPAC can choose to pull their capital out. They typically would do that if they don't like the way the stock is trading versus the $10 stated merger value, which represents the valuation of, of, the, of the go public value for the target company. Or, or for whatever reason, they don't like the market backdrops. There are factors that influence redemption. The second important date just ahead of the, of the consummation of the merger is the vote. Uh, the vote in this back context is typically perfunctory, but it does represent one additional risk consideration for the target because every investor in the SPAC that holds shares at that date has the ability to vote in favor of, of the merger. You do need a majority vote, yes. And so even investors that abstain, that's counted as a no vote. So 51% of holders of the stock have to vote yes for the merger to be uh, approved. Got it. So we talked a little bit about kind of the popularity of SPACs now versus the previous peak kind of pre-crisis 2006, 2007. A lot has changed, I think, structurally and also in terms of who the sponsors actually are. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that's evolved to something that was often overlooked to some really well-known names getting involved in the space. So people like Dan Loeb, Sir Richard Branson, Chamath, and you know our special guest for our conference this year, Billy Bean. So they're all champ championing them. And you also have VCs getting involved as well. And so would love to just kind of understand why you think they've taken off like this. Sure. And we welcome comments from, from Herb on this point. We've seen the evolution over the past decade. Structurally, there have been some innovations from pre-crisis until today. Most notably, in the immediate post-crisis period, we pushed to innovate with the breaking up of the shareholder redemption right and the vote. And what that meant was there are deals that can occur that can be voted through successfully to merge where you still have some redemptions, but you don't have the same vote risk. So that's one important development post-crisis was separating the redemption with the vote. We've also seen greater sophistication on the investor side. And so because you've had higher quality companies merging with SPACs, you've compelled a large universe within the institutional investor base to now focus on the SPAC product, both buying at the time that the SPAC goes public, but also investing in SPAC pipes. So prior to this year, the universe of investors in SPAC pipes were typically more structurally oriented hedge funds. It's now become completely plain vanilla where the same investors that would anchor an IPO are anchoring SPAC pipes. So we've dramatically widened the universe of investors that are backing the SPAC process. Uh, and that's due in large part to the improvement in the quality of companies merging with SPACs. Because there have been high-quality SPAC sponsors coming to market in mass over the course of the last 12 months, and because of recent success stories of SPAC mergers, whether it's companies like Clarivate or DraftKings, Bill Trust, Opendoor, you're seeing a really high-caliber suite of companies coming public through SPAC mergers. It's attracting more and more targets to look at the SPAC route to go public. Uh, so it's created a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy with greater, more target-rich environment to merge with SPACs 
high quality SPAC sponsors coming to market and, uh, and a cycle of strong performance that's really improved over the course of this year. Yeah, to add to uh, Paul's point, Sarah, something that I find is really resonating with the companies that are considering going public is that they look at some of the sponsors of the SPACs today and they see individuals or teams, partners that can add operational benefit to the company, whether that's through sales and marketing expertise, whether that's through product expertise, whether that's through a Rolodex of relationships that can bring strategic partnerships to the company. So it's evolved to become more than a mechanism to go public. It's, it certainly is a great mechanism to go public, but it's also a mechanism to add value to the company in and of itself. And then when you have sponsors who have deep industry expertise and a track record of successful investing, it also becomes a form of validating capital. And if you're in a space that's incredibly either new in terms of you're breaking new ground, it's helpful to have a validating investor who says, I look at this landscape, I believe in the opportunity of where it's going. And I believe that of the companies that are attacking a new greenfield opportunity, this is one of the leaders in the space. So I think it's this combination of bringing operational expertise and benefit to the company, as well as validating capital that has made this very popular amongst uh, growth equity companies. Got it, definitely makes sense, thanks. So then kind of switching gears a little bit again here, what makes for a good SPAC target? High quality businesses that exhibit characteristics that'll resonate in the public market. I do think that SPAC product, because you're able to file forecasts, allows companies to go public earlier stage. So I think there's a slightly different criteria for SPAC merger targets versus the IPO market. In the IPO market, because you're relying on third-party underwriter analysts to help articulate the growth story, and you can get diverging views in that process, it can be more challenging for earlier stage companies to get public through the traditional IPO route. In the SPAC, you're seeing companies get public earlier stage, companies that would have otherwise funded in the late stage private market are choosing the SPAC route because they can clearly articulate on their own what their equity story is, what their value uh, proposition is, the growth thesis, and then the margin outlook. So I think it's really similar characteristics to the IPO market, but the ability to go earlier in the, in the SPAC merger context. But really high quality businesses. I think we're seeing very strong demand for companies across sectors in the SPAC market. There's definitely been a move towards growth, but there's still businesses in slower growing industries that see a benefit to the SPAC process, in particular levered businesses that need to show their path to getting into more normalized leverage profile with a more right-sized debt, debt load. We're seeing that, that ultimately resonate in the SPAC market as well. And would you say, so when direct listings really started to gather steam, a lot of the time it was from companies that didn't necessarily need the primary capital. Would you say for SPACs, it's, it's fairly different in that the primary capital component is a very big piece of this? I would think of the SPAC as almost akin to a direct listing with the primary capital injection. Right. Uh, it's fixed value. You've got the ability to take in the capital in the SPAC, which has the downside of being redeemable technically, but if it's properly valued, properly structured, that should mitigate, uh, mitigate redemptions. And then you've got the ability to take in committed capital in the form of the pipe, we referenced the FPA, that's the forward purchase agreement, which some SPACs put in place at the time that the SPAC goes public. Think of that as a pre-placed pipe, typically by an affiliate of the SPAC sponsor. 
So I would look at it from that lens. The direct listing can be efficient if you've already raised sufficient capital in the private market and simply need to provide liquidity to your existing shareholders. But many similar characteristics between the SPAC and direct, direct listing, both incorporate filed forecasts, both market for an extended period of time, both have this concept of shareholder rotation. In the SPAC, oftentimes you need to cycle out some of the holders of the SPAC into the holders of the ultimate target, very similar to the rotation from private market investors in the direct listing context, right. cycling through the market upon the listing event to, to the new set of public shareholders. Right. So obviously you guys have a great pulse on this market. Would love to get your take on the public investor perspective on SPACs. And if this is viewed kind of as a fad or if it's something that will, will definitely have lasting power here. I think that the product's here to stay. We see this as the golden age of SPACs. We've been through multiple cycles with SPACs. I think the big difference, aside from the historic wave of SPAC capital raising activity and the pace of SPAC mergers, what we're seeing is a real desire by some of these late stage private companies, in particular in tech enabled industries, to get public. They want that access to permanent capital. They recognize that there can be downside to staying private for too long. And there are some companies for whom the SPAC merger is a better wrapper, a better structure to get public than a traditional IPO. So the cap capital is abundant. It's a quote unquote seller's market, even though you're not really selling, it's more of a, a merger process, but it's definitely a seller's market given the competition among SPACs for targets. There are close to 200 SPACs outstanding, about $70 billion of total capital. A small fraction of those have announced mergers. The vast majority are still searching for targets and they all have less than 24 months to consummate that merger. So for private companies looking for a captive source of delivering capital certainty at a fixed value that they've negotiated, the SPAC can represent an attractive opportunity. The SPAC process is still subject to the same market backdrop and volatility that the IPO market is subject to. But again, due to that private marketing, you can help mitigate some of that volatility impact on the IPO market and deliver a, a more packaged solution that can deliver a bit more certainty to the target companies. Great. And so I guess to wrap things up here, one last question for you both. So you've you've answered this a little bit in, in some of the previous questions, but for some of our audience who might be watching this, they are some of our portfolio company CEOs and, and senior leaders um, of those companies. So why should a venture back team consider a SPAC or not? What do you think are, are the key things that they should be evaluating if they were to get approached by a SPAC? Yeah, I think if I were a management team of, of one of your portfolio companies, I would ask myself, one, do I like the idea that I come to agreement on the value of the company in through a private discovery process, and then I market that value as opposed to I go market and then I figure out the value at the end. For me personally, I like the ability to really articulate my story in private and have that price discovered. The second thing is I would, to the point that we were making before, if you're approached by a SPAC, evaluate the, the sponsor of the SPAC. And is it somebody that you believe understands your business, understands your strategy, understands where you're trying to take the business and can be helpful in that endeavor and potentially brings marketing benefit as validation of the company. And finally, to Paul's point earlier, you have to be ready to be a public company, regardless of how you get there. This is a great mechanism to get there, but I think that's it's still nuts and bolts and the basics are, are you ready to be public and give guidance and take advantage of the SPAC process of being able to give filed forecasts 
which is a part of being ready to be a public company. Got it. Well, great. I, I think that's it for today. But again, thank you both so much for having this conversation with us. Definitely super helpful, insightful, and just really to, to have ha really happy to have had the chance to speak with you today. So thank you both. Yeah. Sarah, thank you for having us. And we are really happy to have the opportunity and would be delighted to follow up with any of your portfolio companies that are interested in a deeper dive on the topic. Awesome. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, we appreciate right. the time. Thank you. Thank you.